Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending April 14. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, we get serious about tidying with talk of chores. And Liz Kingsman takes us into her one-woman show, featured as part of Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Digger shares his excitement for the internet and winter deciduous trees. V Wright reviews Stone Blind by Natalie Haynes and Lisa Visi tells us about her new podcast, Shifting Subjects, documenting Asian Australian stories. Chris KP joins us with the weird science of home runs in hot weather and we take a thought shower drilling down into our office lingo learnings. Triple R. I've been thinking about weekend chores, you know, <laughs> I feel like everyone feels differently. For some it's like really satisfying it's you know they love a list to tick through on the weekend mm. yeah for others it's absolute pain I know we um I always kind of delay doing my chores until the Sunday or yesterday you know it was the Monday or until just, your family come over and then you're like oh can you just give me a quick hand with this yeah just yeah <laughs> roping some friends yeah I'll be ready thank you for giving me a lift I just need you to quick I just need to quickly vacuum and do the dishes then we'll be out in a jiffy yeah so you can try yeah <laughs> great tactic uh no we have a cleaning wheel in my house that's our approach yeah our communal share house so yeah the the wheel hangs over me and Oh, yeah, I always delay it. This week I was on the bathroom and I was just really like oh, putting it off. <laughs> Sometimes you can stretch it out during the week. You text your housemates, look, I'm, I'm going to do the bathroom, but it'll be, it'll be, um, it'll be midweek. But yesterday was a real journey because, and I find this often happens as well, that once you start the cleaning, it becomes like the most satisfying. I found it so deeply satisfying mm. and the sense of achievement that I walked away from, like <laughs> after cleaning the bathroom. It's just like, yes. Yeah, it was. And then it does. It kickstarts this idea of, of what can be done next, that I'm I'm putting on the gloves, I'm going out into the garden, <laughs> I'm waiting. Yeah. Is the wheel random? Yeah, how does no, this wheel No, the work? wheel's not random, so it rotates through three names. Ah. Um, my housemate, like, she is a jewellery designer. She's, like, really creative. So the wheel's got a squid on it, a pattern. I did notice, and I flagged this with her last night. I was like, did you change the design of the wheel? <laughs> <laughs> she did. She wasn't happy with it. Initially, it was an octopus. Then she changed it to a squid. And I never, I never turned the wheel either. Mm. It is really? just like an unspoken thing. So it's like the Wheel of Fortune it. where the, the, up the top is where the arrow goes and then you spin the wheel counterclockwise so it so there's, ding, ding, ding that bathroom. Yeah, so there's three. Yeah, there's the bathroom, the kitchen and the hallway, yeah. the three jobs, and then you rotate clockwise mm -hmm. and so your name lines up with the room of the house. Keeps it ex oh. That's kinda exciting. Like, kind of like Cluedo, you know. So it yeah. feels like a sense of with mop. game yeah. and randomness, but it's actually prescribed, yeah. you know, in advance. Yeah, it's, yeah. But it's, still, it's a bit of fun. Yeah, absolutely. How do you two feel about chores? Do you have a system? Uh, I mean, there's chores and there's chores. I mean, I don't like chores where it's someone's in charge of cleaning up their own stuff mm. that's to me not a chore no it's like, not exactly that's a really interesting question yeah what is a chore and then what is just being a your up. own mess yeah chore has to be communal i find i don't i think setting i kind of see chores in terms of decimals okay like, oh wow like you get say one full point for vacuuming 
Yes. Mm. Or maybe let's let's say two, mm-hmm. but like setting the table is like a point three. Okay, yeah. sure. I don't yeah. find setting the table to be remotely. Uh, no, setting the, the table is a walk in the park. There's no exertion I mean, there. What are you doing? It's. I mean, a base set is cutlery. Yeah. Sure. If you're really going, I mean, then if you want to kind of embellish a bit on that, you've got the cups. And then what else? I feel exactly. Like, I feel like you don't have to do the dishes if you set the table. That is such a <laughs> sham. Like, that's like. <laughs> I'm staring. Because it used to be, you know, the Queen's coming over. Now she's dead and no one's expecting Charles. King Charles. No. So I feel like setting the table, there's no gradations now. And so the points in your mind, that's your own little kind of incentive system that you have operating in your mind. No one's across these points but you. No, no, I haven't articulated them and I wouldn't share them. I would just kind of walk around seething. Yeah, until one resentment. day you're just going to put it all on the fridge. Yeah, exactly. And they'll be like, what is this, Daniel? And you'll mm. be like, this is the point system. I find, I reckon sweeping gets a point seven. <gasps> See, I love sweeping. Yeah, me that too. That is hands down my favourite chore. Yeah. It's so meditative, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And so I don't feel like I should be rewarded for something I enjoy so much. No. So I get downgraded. See, uh. I've been thinking about incentives as well, and I was thinking I'd love to somehow, like, I'd love to bring back pocket money. Yeah. But how to wrangle that for myself as an adult, I'm not sure. Maybe a system like, yeah, my own little pocket money system. Get some jars like, going. Yeah, i get $5 so in a jar. If you, you give yourself pocket money. Yeah, but oh, then like how that. to kind of trick myself into kind of... Well, what if what if there was a third party who was had the kitty and yeah. then you had to convince them that you'd earn the pocket money? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Who would that be? It could well, be a housemate. Well, Jace could do it. Yeah, yeah. Or so one of treasurer. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah Jace is the, the pocket money treasurer. Maybe that should be for all adults renting. I'm sure that would help out a lot of like housemate politics. Absolutely. I mean, also, I reckon. So we've got vacuuming, right? And so let's say vacuuming is worth one. But if you have a stick vacuum that's not plugged in, that goes down to a uh, point eight. Yeah, because it's kind of. And then sometimes you turn the vacuum on, and you're like, it's not even sucking anything up. Like oh, someone about- hasn't changed the bag. Yeah, and yeah. Emptying. What's changing the bag? That's worth? a point five. So we're adding that to the I vacuuming. Would, I would hike that right up. Yeah, and because that's a huge amount of work that you got to take the vacuum apart. It's, it's gross. Then you got to find the vacuum bags. <laughs> yeah. they're never where you think they are. Change. I'd say that's at least three points. Wow. And I'll fight you on that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's weird, isn't it? Because there's a. I've come across a dustbuster, right? Okay, mm. so we all know what a dustbuster is. Yeah, a mini vacuum. Yeah, this one's got a cord. What is the point of a dustbuster? No. The whole point is that it's portable and you can go anywhere. Yeah. Oh, what about dusting? Getting yeah. further dust through. I feel like no one dusts anymore. <laughs> That's no one's dusting. That one came up the other day. Did it? Who Did, didn't get any bites in your household? Do you dust? <laughs> well, I just thought it. Someone, one of my housemates, was like, "Oh, is there anything I can do?" I was like, "Uh, dust." Dust. Yeah. Dusting. Dust is a nothing job. I'd give that point I, zero two. I reckon dusting is a is a fantastic job. That's a oh, well, job. well, well, well. Dusting gets two. Dusting for me gets one point five. And seven bucks in pocket money because yeah. it's it's it's, it's the unsung heroes of chores. But yeah. I mean, how's the technology? Is it really grabbing the dust anymore? No one's like, doing it. What they have abs- dusters have plateaued. We have vacuums, different mops. Like I think way more effective would be sugar soaping, wiping down services, not just moving the dust around. 
I think it's it's lazy. Yeah. Mm. There, I said it. <laughs> if you're, there's a lot of elbow work in the dusting. And if oh, you're, are you kidding me? <laughs> and if you're disinfecting a television remote... Oh, okay. Like we're deep diving now into yeah, shorts. Yeah, no, great. Let's. So th- this sounds like a personal favourite of yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- it's one of those – a job that's fantastic and rewarding, mm. as you describe. Yeah. And and everybody benefits from it, but no one notices. Mm. No one. What if you, you – I love using the uh, eucalyptus. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, now – God, God we a favourite well, What do you sense? mean? What do you do with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Just cleans everything, right? Oh, uh, see, I, the, here's what I would do: I would just spray eucalyptus around, yeah, and people would have the sense that have things like, have been cleaned. Yeah, this is true. Maybe that's a great thing you can do with the remote. Yeah, is spraying it. That's my life hack. Uh, could you mind if I just spray eucalyptus and you can give me my pocket money? <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Five bucks. D- douse the house in eucalyptus. Yeah. So, anyway, all right, Jace, I need to talk to you about. The pocket money, how we're going to set that up. Bank accounts, a lot of logistics. Yeah, we'll get one of those. We'll, we'll get a system going, don't worry about that. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Liz Kingsman is an actor and writer who stars in the comedy series Parliament, the English and French language project icon of French cinema, and is creator of One Woman Show. The critically acclaimed play opened at Soho Theatre in October 2021 and has gone on to enjoy a hit run in London's West End, where it was nominated for an Olivia Award for Best Entertainment or Comedy Play, was nominated for Best Show at Edinburgh Fringe last year and was recently staged at the Opera House. One Woman Show is on at the Malt House now for the Comedy Festival. And to tell us about it, the deeply relatable hot mess joins us now. Liz, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. Um, what a journey, huh? Yeah, can you I, can you read that to me every morning? <laughs> <laughs> really um, is it weird? I mean, you uh, you have gone, you're Sydney-based, then you go to the UK and you've come back the talk of the town. Is that a fair description? <laughs> I don't know because I'm not here to hear any <laughs> talk, so this is my first experience with talk. No, it's been a really crazy journey. Um yeah, that, when I came back in Sydney, that was the first time I'd ever come to work here properly. I mean, I just sort of worked accidentally once, but, you know, not illegally. But, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting coming back as a professional working person, filling my little landing slip on the plane and having to put, like, a- actor, writer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was, it's been interesting. Is there anything about Australia that caused you to... Put your light under a bushel or anything like that? Oh, gosh, no. I, I weirdly have been asked a couple of times, like, did I feel like I had to go away to do this job? And I it, I just am not the right person to ask because I went when I was 19. So you don't think about anything when, you, you know, when you're 19, you just do things. Mm. It's a sort of freedom to just, like, oh, I'm going to go to the UK. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you break down what you've done here for those uh, no. uninitiated? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is... It is how do we feel about the word spoof? spoof? I'm not a huge fan, but yeah, it's really it's it's a useful word mm. to describe the show. But I agree, it's got a strange connotation to it. Spoof. It sounds a bit um, uh, sort of silly, but I like silly stuff. But <laughs> yeah. something about spoof just sounds a bit naff, maybe parody. And then if you go towards the word satire, it starts to get a bit highbrow. Mm. Um, it's hard to describe for sure. <laughs> pa- I think I like pra- parody is nice. Yeah, I think you do an excellent summation in the show a little bit you do you do which I think yeah what do you say yeah I think I say it's a parody of a genre yeah so it's you know it's not parodying one show or one play but of the one woman show and yeah exactly which I don't think had been 
I mean, obviously everyone knew of one-woman shows as being a genre, but the no one we hadn't really looked at like what makes up that genre. No, and yeah, so, yeah, that was something I was just I didn't. I sort of accidentally did. You know? Yeah, and like the classic tropes of like a female character and the amount of like um, kind of flaws that you can give her as well as keeping her endearing and yeah. we're kind of feeding into it. It's a particular type of, you know, on screen or on stage female character that's very popular at the moment, mm-hmm. you know, overly overly flawed basically. And I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> well, indeed. <Yeah. laughs> and as Daniel was mentioning, it has been such an extraordinary journey and the show itself has undergone a number of, I suppose, developments and alterations. Can you talk to us about maybe some of the aspects that have evolved and maybe what are some of the core fascinations for you that you're sort of investigating through the show? Oh, that's, that's very early for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it never was intended to be a sort of soapbox piece, something that I felt like I had to say something. It was more that I found it funny that I'd seen a lot of one-woman shows throughout, you know, a couple of years and just I just found them funny and it's because I'm not very sincere and I'm not very, um, like, earnest or the sorts of work that I'd done previously was very, you know, sketch comedy and that's really where I'd... the sort of scene that I'd been in. And then... So I found the idea of people bearing their souls on stage just quite amusing and so... It was. It really came about as more of a something I found funny, and then, then the message. I'm doing inverted commas. It's on the radio, <laughs> but you can't tell. Um, the message of the piece came about as I was writing it. When I realised, oh, I think I actually have some stuff I want to say here, but I didn't. Oh, I so think if I'd started with here's something I want to say, it's very important. I, it would have been a much different piece. But it becomes maybe a process of discovery for you as you oh, very much are writing so, yeah. and performing. But very much just I'll, something will make me laugh and then I'll be like, why do I think that's stupid? And then I'll think about that for a bit. But I, had a, I have an amazing director, Adam Brace, who was the soundboard for that as well. So if it was just me in a room being like, is that funny? I, I would have gone mad. But he was, <laughs> he's an incredibly collaborative director who you know, works with the script a lot as well. So. Yeah, and I think that all kind of you describing the fun and what you find funny really comes across in your show. Like I definitely have that feeling of like when you're watching films and how you absorb it and especially as a performer of these characters on stage. So oh, it's thanks, such a, yeah. joy, a joy to watch, definitely. And you've you've expressed in kind of other interviews and, and, and I think you even maybe mentioned on stage that you maybe feel a little bit at odds with like this kind of send-up of like the, the one-woman show or the parody or playing with that. But do you find some... Sometimes with that, it's like women aren't afford, like, afforded the same kind of nuanced approach to other females' work. Sometimes it's a bit like you support them or you don't kind of thing. Yeah, I suppose so. I think um, there's been, I think, because the whole publicity journey for mm. the show, if we can call it a publicity journey. Let's do it. Like, why not? Everybody is. Um, yeah. Are they these days? Yeah. I heard that. Um, I, yeah, I was really new to doing interviews and stuff, and I, and I, I found that there and I, I obviously realised this over time, that there was this, maybe a sort of feeling that people were trying to, like, nail down exactly who I was. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, who, you've made this piece about the women who are like this, so you must be the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a flattering picture of me, like, people describing me as being very <laughs> sensible and, like, the reason I must have found it at odds with messy, yeah. you know, chaotic women who are, who are in, you know, like, care, carefree mm-hmm. must be because I'm not carefree and I'm 
Mm-hmm. You know, very type A. Yeah. And at first, I was sort of leaning into that, being like, "Yeah, I guess I am like that." <laughs> yeah. And then as the thing New started, identity. Yeah. yeah, it was like a sort of echo chamber of my own personality coming back at me, and I was like, "Oh, that isn't the reason I wrote the show. That's just like a fun- that's a symptom of mm-hmm. the sorts of th- I maybe felt initially that I didn't relate to those characters, but it's not like it's not my flag in the ground, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's I think it's nuances exactly. It's it's. There's always, mm. I, I, I don't want to, I'm at odds with the sort of really messy, relatable woman, but it's not, it's not my entire yeah, exactly. <laughs> DNA. The show has a somewhat proudly dumb sensibility, sort of like a flying high, expertly crafted silliness and idiocy. How does that gel with what seems to be pretty exact uh, production values. <laughs> yeah, that's where the type A <laughs> is, is out. Yeah, I. It's yeah, it's a very well-oiled machine. It has to be because with solo th- anything, solo play theatre, like you, once you're on, you're on. Like you have to step into this machine, and so and I do. I am very meticulous. <laughs> uh, I just wish there was another way, but I don't think there is, and. I'm yet to discover a way that I can work without being, like, running myself into the ground trying to, to do everything. I else. can't imagine how long that tech goes for. The stage, like, production it, uh, and but design. yeah, it's worth it because it It's looks, incredible. I love how yeah. it looks, yeah. Oh, my God, the different hues in those lights. It was beautiful it's to watch. Very, it definitely comes very off. very talented lighting designer who I've been working with since day one called Daniel Carter-Brennan, who's in Melbourne yeah. designing the show here. Like, there's a whole, you know, there's a team of people who come and build it and it's yeah well that's i what, get all the credit of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. that's what i was curious about watching it because it is such a densely written show there's so many layers to it and then the production elements of it as well are incredible has, has that kind of evolved with time or did you kind of hit the stage like with the first show with it kind of quite polished it's definitely, it's always been at like the most polished I could make it for that venue. But we were playing in, you know, mm. studio, little studio black box venues in London and stuff. And a, and a railway arch underneath Waterloo train stations <laughs> were previewed. So there's not as good tech capacity there as there is, you know, on the West End, for example. But there's, it's always been the aim to make the show. It, I never wanted the show, the spoof play that I'm doing to be bad. Like I wanted that to be mm. good. And then I wanted it to be exaggerated. So in order to do that, we had to get, you know, it's very unusual for a comedy show to have a lighting designer. Mm. Um, But that was Adam Brace, the director, who was like, I just think you should, I think uh, to make this, the power, to make it real, Mm. let's go for it. And so we really went for it. And we have, you know, incredible sound designer called Max Perryman. And we gave all of our, choreographer Joshua Lay, we gave all of our creatives um, alter egos, so that if they did anything too good, we'd be like, um, so like Dan, Dan, the lighting designer's alter ego is called Diablo, and if if he does if he does something that looks like really subtle, we'd be like, no, but what would Diablo do? He'd do something over the top. So we have to we have to encourage them to push the boundaries of what they think is acceptable. Plays within plays within yeah, plays. Exactly, wow. Yeah. What about these French shows? Is that more uh, glamorous than it sounds? You know what? It is glamorous. I love it. I get to go on the Eurostar. Oh. It's very nice. It's it's very odd. I didn't. I don't speak French, so I don't know why I'm in two French shows. But look, I'm not going to say no when they come around. Um, the first the first one, Parliament, is is um, like political satire. So I'm playing an English person. It's all about the 
EU Parliament. So mm-hmm. it's about all the different nationalities, the people who, li- who live and work in Brussels. And uh, so that's fine. But the second French show, I don't know what I'm doing in that one. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because that's everyone else is French in that one. And uh, where's One Woman Show going next? To New York. Whoa. New York. The Big Apple. It, um, there's a line in the show where I say... And I could take the show to New York if I wanted to. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's really happening. So the show is f- fully eating itself. <laughs> um, well, congratulations. Do you do any self-help gear outside of the... What's gear? Well, not gears in material, like but like, do you, do you believe in... Uh, um... No, I used to, when I was a teenager, I used to, I lived in that self-help section of the uh... library. In Stanton Library, I used to go to the self-help section and just... I just love them. They're mm. so stupid. I like I like listening to audio books of them, especially the American ones, because they're so earnest. Mm. There's one called Deep Work, which is r- all about like getting into a flow state. Oh, I love I that. I love it. But I don't do any. I no. don't do it. I don't follow it. But it's it. useful to skewer earnestness, which happens in yeah. One Woman Show. I love listening to Brene Brown. Like She gets yes. so many laughs a minute. I think she's like, I'm like, this is a stand-up special, Brene. Come on. It's true. <laughs> It's true. Well, Liz Kingsman is starring in One Woman Show. It's on at the Malthouse until the 23rd of April. You can head to malthousetheatre.com.au or comedyfestival.com.au. Welcome back and thanks for being here, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Gardening guru Digger's with us to get down dirty. Morning, Digger. Morning, all. Uh, what's it like out there? Filthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, coming in. It's that, it's that type of wet where you drive and it's like, oh, big puddle. Oh, big puddle. Oh, big puddle. Um, <laughs> drove past someone recently and just drenched them like they're on the footpath. It was like they're in a sitcom. I felt terrible. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Yeah. So what, 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 what do you have to do now? Like, what, what is the climate telling you? So much going on now. So, you know, in gardening, we always have to think ahead. Planning, 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 really important. And um, obviously... Soon to come is winter. It's a very wintry day today, but soon to come is winter. So all of the tree companies are preparing. They've opened their online shopping for you to buy your winter deciduous stock. So think of your your fruit trees or your climbers and those kind of things. So it's actually very exciting with the internet these days because you used to, old days, you'd have to wait. The nurseries would get their stock in, in in June and you'd just see what's there. And they can only carry so many varieties where with online shopping of fruit trees in particular, the sky's the limit. There are so many different companies with so many different varieties, so many options, heights, colours, seasons. Um, you can even buy rootstock, so just buy the little engine essentially and, and graft your own trees. It's just endless varieties. And who you know, over the last few years, we learnt how to online shop really, really well. Mm. Um, so it's just... Yeah, there's a lot of people buying jackets and scarves online right now, but you could be buying trees. Yeah, right. Yeah, add that to your <laughs> to your repertoire. Would you? What's the most recent tree that you've come across or acquired? Uh, probably the most recent one was it was called Magnus Summer Surprise, and it was from a company in Tasmania, uh, Woodbridge Fruit Trees. My favourite. I absolutely love them. Um, and essentially, it was from an old stock that Bob Magnus, who's that you know the old grandfather of the mob and it's been taken over by the younger generations now. 
but it was just an apple that he found and then he grafted it and then slowly cross-pollinated it with some other varieties and came up with his own new variety. So just before he retired, got it to the point where they'd grown it on enough and released it to the public and you could buy it online. So wow. it's one apple that's only available from one company <laughs> in southern Tasmania. Wow. Amazing. Really Amazing. quick question. I don't want to suck into any t- too much time, but... Grafting can go wrong though, can't it? Because I've got a tree, a fruit tree in my backyard. It's not a lemon and it's not an orange or a, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. And I wonder if it was grafted wrong. Um, potentially. So with grafting, the DNA you know stops and starts from that point. So you know, essentially, you've got you know the engine, the roots of the plant, and wherever it's grafted on, whatever variety that new graft is, it stays the same. So okay. that that would be a cross pollination if issue if it's a completely different. A widow, but that could be that could be good. I'll you could bring be onto something. Yeah, I'll bring it in to Not show lemonade, you next time. Is it? No, a, a, a lemonade's like a cross lemon and an orange. Yeah, I've tried um, to put it in a gin and tonic a couple of times. It's lovely, but yeah, it's not. It's oh, bring not it in. I'll if bring you're it onto in. something new, you could be cashing yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> Retiring. <Yeah. laughs> we have some, some other questions on 0466981027. I bought a marsh grapefruit tree about 80 centimetres and it was in a 20 centimetre pot. They told me at the nursery not to repot it for about 12 months, maybe two years, but my partner thought it needed a bigger pot and now it's in a 50 centimetre pot. Is that going to make a difference to its growth? Uh, not going to make a difference to its growth, but you're going to have to water it and feed it a lot more because that, that vo- extra volume of medium around it, the roots are going to try and fill that quickly. And so the roots can't contract. So if you give it really good watering from the start and then you stop watering really well, the root's going to be hanging out there and drying out. So hence that we always say just pot up one size at a time Mm. so you can actually slowly develop the roots. If you go too big, too quick, you're going to have to try and keep up with it. All right. And do you have any relationship advice for them? Uh, No. Uh, There's... No, no. (laughs) Stop yourself. I'll have a drink. Okay. Uh, Digger, I've got a problem with my lemon tree. Just kidding, if they say. Um, They're trying to kill or get rid of a grass patch and using the cardboard method, but Mm. any tips or tricks to really stop the grass or weeds growing back? You will never stop it. You can only slow it down. So this is where keep putting the mulch and the cardboard or whatever over the top of it. And so that buys you some time then to try and then plant some new stuff in there that will outcompete it. So it's never over. You're just slowing it down. Okay. And there's one question here from someone who says... The rule of thumb is to prune shrubs, etc., after flowering. But I have—is it Correa's? Correa. Correa. C o w r e a. Yes, thank you. Um, that seem to flower all year round. When is the best time to prune? So now would be a really good time to prune because with most a lot of Australian natives, there they flower in the cooler seasons, and most of the action happens in the cooler seasons because summer's so harsh. You think about northern hemisphere, winter's harsh, so. They go dormant then, and so in, in Australia we do the opposite. So, yeah, give them a light haircut now. Um, <laughs> there's always exceptions to the rule. If it's a chef's hat courier, which is a lime green flowering courier, it flowers predominantly in the depth of winter, so if you did it now you might not get some flowers. But for the most part, if, if the bulk of the flowering is finished... Give it a haircut. Mm. Are there gardening duos? It seems like a solitary pursuit and you wouldn't want to rope in your loved one. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's better. Usually you know, gardeners <laughs> do it as their solace, as their me time. Um, but, you know, there's some wonderful duos that, that do it. I know of a few, you know, husband and wife teams that have been doing it for 50 years and they're absolutely, you know, they couldn't do it without each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen that way for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can, oh, oh, no, sorry, there's another question. It was Go. about grafting. I've grafted... 
passion fruit plant above the graft is growing slow, but below the graft is bolting. What do I do? Yeah, so that's the rootstock is taking over. So you're in trouble. <laughs> um, so that's the whole idea. So rootstock is designed to be the engine. So they t- pick a variety that is very vigorous in growing, but its fruit is pr- fairly tacky or maybe even sterile. So from the point of the graft, they put the good fruiter on the top. So if the, most, of the work, most of the growth is coming below the graft, you've got to cut all that away. You've got to stop that from growing through. If it's to the point of no return, you've got to pull that plant out and start again. Happens a lot with passion fruits. Okay. Mm. The graft is the rootstock is too strong for the graft. I was just going to ask quickly, like following up on the weeds and the cardboard method. Mm. My lawn is just like a mix of different weeds with the spattering of grass. Mm. Is there a better time to do it if I was to really like put down a big tarp or lots of um, cardboard to try and kind of kill as many weeds and plant a new grass? Would winter be a, a good time? Well, or? it depends on what the grass species is. You want to do it at the peak growing season, okay. so. Whether it's a cool season grower, it'll be going pretty berserk right now. Yeah. If it's a warm season grower, you want to do it right at the start of their main season mm. because you know, plants need light to photosynthesise. So the whole idea about this smothering method is when it wants to grow, you block out light. Mm. So now those leaves can't replace all the energy that's in the root system. Mm. So it will exhaust all the energy in the root system to try and grow new leaves that it can't replace. So mm. essentially you kill the whole thing, roots and all, yeah. as the advertisements go. Yeah. So you want to do it in the main growing season. Whenever you see it usually goes fastest, yep. that's when you do your smothering. Okay, there's when, so many things going on in when, that grass. When planning a garden, is it? do people think about it and now's the time? Like, do, do they think about it all year? Um, yeah, all year round because planting, you know, a garden's never finished. And so, you know, there's the old adage of when's the best time to plant a tree. You mm. ever heard that one? Mm. 30 years ago. Yes. <laughs> and if not, today. Yes. Yeah. So you've got to think about your gardens long term. Now, they're never finished, but it doesn't mean you can't stop planting because stuff works, stuff doesn't work. Everything comes to an end at some point. But, you know, talking about the trees and kind of tying into the whole forget-me-not part of, you know, um, April Amnesty right now, you've really got to be thinking long-term with gardens. Mm. I think it's a lovely pursuit to just constantly be thinking years ahead and think of other generations. Look, you know, remember, we're here for a short time. We're stewards. We don't own it. We're here just to look after it while we're here Mm. um, and thinking long-term. And that's part of gardens. So thinking about putting in trees... What impact is, going to, is that going to have? Remember, we plant trees not for us, it's for other generations to come. Mm. So really think about you know, putting it in the right spot. Is it going to be dangerous? Is it going to be a magnificent thing? Um, is it in a spot where no one's going to ever touch that? Yeah, I think it's just a wonderful legacy thing to do to plant gardens and plant plan long term. It's quite consequential, isn't it? It's yeah. huge, yeah, mm. it really is. We see trees that you know, other people's planted 100 years ago. Yeah. Does that extend to your personal life? Because I think this is maybe a barrier I face as a, a novice gardener is the ability to plan ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm at the point now where you know I'm thinking about mortality and so I'm really thinking long term. <laughs> cool. uh, it's true. I'm, yeah. I'm being absolutely serious oh, here. It's like, like you know, um, what is going to be my legacy and, you know, if it can be a whole stack of plants that make people happy in, you know, 2220, mm. Fantastic. All right. Well, before you shuffle off, can you answer some of these? Is it too late to prune my summer fruit trees, plum, cherry, etc.? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's going into dormancy now. If they get, if they grow any new shoots, it'll get burnt by frost. Okay. And we do have one more, but we also want to say how beautiful it is to always hear your philosophical approaches to these, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. these topics. I don't course, know. I just go on a rant sometimes. No, because <laughs> it was interesting when you were talking about your diarising of. of 
garden activities that's very much being in the present but this is I guess an extension of that thinking mm. about the, the future as well yeah. so this particular listener was asking about their lemon leaves and said they've gone all curly what's happening there um, curly could be a nutrient deficiency if they went yellowing first and the vein stayed green and the, and the rest of the leaves went yellow it's a trace element deficiency if there's any browning on the leaves it's a water issue as well so usually that is a combination of a whole stack of stuff has gone wrong so water it and feed it. Excellent. Using these minimal jigsaw pieces, can you put together this puzzle? Have olive trees struggling in large pots? Yeah, water. Yeah. Um, so the, the pots are probably going to be masonry, usually for that people love putting them, you know, olives in terracotta pots, which dry out too quickly. And then the root systems of olive, olive trees are actually quite shallow. So, yeah, it needs to be potted up mm. and put into a non-masonry pot. You can read more of Digger's musings in Trip Magazine. It's a beautiful piece. Thank you. Uh, and it's all about the forget-me-not, which ties in, as he mentions, to April Amnesty. Go to rr.org.au to subscribe. Hey, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thanks, Digger. Triple R. We're joined to talk books by a tireless educator and influencer, Fee Wright. Morning, Fee. <laughs> yeah. Every every week, every week. Um, I am. I am. I don't know if I call myself tireless. There was a moment when my alarm went off on the first real day of the school holidays at six a.m. and I went. <sighs> Are you talking about today? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. But then I thought, oh, it's April, April amnesty. Got to exactly. come in. Thank come you in. so much. Got to come in and rep. We always appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom and book knowledge with us. I did. I did set that up for yeah. that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All the praise. All the praise. Um, uh, you say influencer. I am. Uh, I'm here this morning to talk about a book that is part of this uh, book talk influencing trend at the moment. Um, and there's been a, a real trend in the last few years of retelling ancient myths um, from alternate perspectives. So I think that um, Madeline Miller really kicked it off with um, Circe and Song of Achilles. Um, then we had Ithaca by Claire North, which um, tells the story of Penelope, who was married to Odysseus, all of these um books were really really fascinating retelling of myths and then we've got the career of Natalie Haynes who she's worked for the BBC um, she's written a number of books retelling um, ancient myths um, she has a, a a number of degrees in the classics can read Latin ancient Greek you know she the the resume speaks for itself yeah <laughs> yeah she's one of those um and and her career really reminds me of there was this lady gaga quote that was making the rounds a little while ago which is a weird reference to when you talk <laughs> yeah. about the classics but you know when she was making that gucci movie and it was like i don't condone murder but i do condone the empowerment of women mm. that's kind of natalie haynes's view on the classics no murder's not okay but let's let's empower some gals. So now we've got a bit of context. The book I'm here to talk about is Stone Blind, um, which is Natalie Haynes' book. It's out now from Harper, and it's the retelling of Medusa. Ooh. And I don't know what you guys can recall about Medusa. It's like snakes for hair, turn you to stone, gets her head chopped off by Perseus. 
That's about it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's the gist, you know. But it turns out that she was cursed over and over and over again and suffered terribly throughout her short life. And so Haynes is attempting to rectify this lack of knowledge in the in the modern world. So I've read a few of her nonfiction books um, and really, really enjoyed them. Pandora's Jar was this amazing book where every chapter was a new um, female heroine where she was recounting these stories and then also relaying them in a modern context. So talking about um, ancient, uh, like Athena, and then also Buffy, you know, and it was a really great book um and when she's writing these non-fiction stories she has this really accessible and clear and crisp writing style which I loved um and it's not rewriting myths but is more of and this is what she calls it it's more of an act of restitution to correct the wrongs of the past that these women have suffered by male authors um particularly when they're being translated from ancient Greek um and in this task of retelling these stories I think that she is really successful However, I didn't like her writing style when it was applied to fiction. Um, And that actually pains me quite a bit as I am a massive history nerd. I teach philosophy at school. I'm currently taking ancient Greek at the moment. Just why not? Got some spare time. That's what all teachers do, isn't it? Just uh, taking ancient Greek. Um, so I'm like, I'm like the target audience here. So it really uh, pained me to say this, especially also because I was reading it and it's been long listed for the Women's Prize this year. And I was like, okay. You object. Well, not that I objected. I was just surprised. Mm-hmm. I expect, yes. Anyway, um, I, don't, I don't really know how to articulate it because I was just like, I didn't think that it was of the calibre of what I was anticipating. So this book does take um, a number of different perspectives on a number of different characters and all of these all of these storylines are quite disparate. You've got Zeus over one side and then you've got Perseus over the other and you're like, how are all of these threads going to come together? And you need to have all of these disparate storylines in order for the end of the book to make sense. You need to experience the gods and Zeus and Poseidon and then you also need the humans, like Perseus' mum, Medusa, her Gorgon sisters, blah, blah, blah. But I found it really choppy at points. You'd be settling into the perspective of a human and then all of a sudden you're reading from the perspective of Zeus and you've got to recalibrate your brain to that. It wasn't quite seamless. Mm. The other thing, um, when I talk about writing fiction or writing stories with students, we often discuss this this really simple concept, I guess, of show, don't tell. So when I say that, I mean like you don't just write Fee is cold. You say Fee shivered and hugged her arms against herself, you know. In nonfiction, you can just straight up tell. You could just say, this happened. This was the thing. In fiction, that feels a little artless or, or graceless to me. And I didn't want Haynes to just tell me that a character sucked. I wanted to get there on my own. And I would have because, you know, this is ancient Greek stories and those people are acting pretty horribly 95% of the time. I was I would have gotten there. I didn't need you to tell me, Haynes. You know, I could have I could have done that, done that on my own. Um, and I didn't like being told immediately that I had to dislike someone because I am quite contrary. Mm. Mm. So, you know, I did like a lot about the book from the terms of what I learned about myths. I never knew about Poseidon assaulting Medusa in Athena's temple and how Athena took great 
offence to this and that it was her that cursed Medusa. There was, like, a lot of things that I did learn about the myths that I've heard over and over again throughout my life, and I did learn a lot from them. And before anyone comes at me, unless you've read these stories in both ancient Greek and Latin like Haynes has, chances are you've read the softened or, shall we say, uh, male perspective on Mm. Medusa, you know. Um, You know, she lived a life of suffering. She hid from people and the world in case she hurt them because she was so petrified of petrifying people. Um, And she was punished even further when Perseus stole her head. Um, You know, it's... I find I'm really I'm really torn on this one because I just did not enjoy the prose style at all and found it really clunky. And but I loved what I learnt from the book, so I have this real I'm really in two minds about mm. it. And it's the the style actually makes the nonfiction sing. Yes. Ordinarily. Yes, exactly. So in nonfiction, like Pandora's Jar was one of the the best books I read. I think I read it during lockdown, and it was just so great and. It just progressed so smoothly and I got a chance to experience all of this um, mythical ancient knowledge and I still got to experience that in this book but fiction just needs a little bit more softening around the edges for me perhaps. But I don't know. The Women's Prize readers uh, obviously uh, disagree. You want to be manipulated by language into Mm. being coming to your own conclusions uh, even if you were manipulated to get yes, there in the first exactly. place. exactly. Like, Perseus is cutting off heads. He's not exactly a good guy, right? <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to work it out. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. Trust me, Haynes. We're but, gonna we're gonna get there together. Uh, but, it's an issue of trust. And so, this is a barnstorming title. This, is this really? Is this exploding? This this book? Oh, it's not even just this book. It's the the concept of retelling these ancient myths from from women's perspectives yeah. or the the female characters that exist within them, because they're often so underplayed. Um, you know, you hear about Helen of Troy and you think that she's this huge manipulator of men. But when she was kidnapped, she was 12. You know, like all of these these stories of these women, you have this huge perspective on because of what we've been told over and over again by society. Medusa, she's out cursing men. Well, actually, was she? You know, or was she cursed by men to begin with? Mm. So... I enjoyed all of those elements of it mm. and particularly if I had been 16, 17, 18 when I read this, I would have eaten it up. Um, please do, obviously, I've just said, please do be aware there are a number of sexual assaults in this book um, as it is a tale of classical Greek myths. So read the book yourself before you go about recommending that to people under those ages because, like, as I said, I would have read that at 16 but, you know, Check for yourself before you give it to someone who is 16. Um, and I have to say, I love how she she talked about these patriarchal ideas of beauty and heroes and what constitutes a monster. But I found the writing style just so underwhelming and maybe I'll just stick to her non-fiction All right. in the future. I mean, get it from the library. Yeah, of course. Yeah. See, what, see what you think. It's out in the... You know, what, I mean, the women's prize can't what, be wrong. What have we been speaking of? We've been speaking of Stone Blind by Natalie Haynes. And it came out, what, uh, late last year or yeah, something? Yeah, September last year. Stone Blind, Natalie Haynes. Fee right. Have a great holiday and thanks oh, very much. I sure will. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R.
From the anti-racist literary platform Liminal, Shifting Subjects is a new podcast that taps into the breadth of histories, voices and experiences of Asian Australian life. It's hosted by journalist Lisa DeVisi, who has worked on RN programs such as Days Like These, Earshot and Blueprint for Living. And to tell us about the five-episode season of Shifting Subjects, its host and executive producer joins us now. Lisa, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. (laughs) Well earned. Now, you you say in the show the term Asian-Australian is broad as hell. What are you drilling down to in this series? I guess, like, the premise of it is, well, I I wanted to make a program about Asian-Australian stories, but in order to do that, I had to figure out what my definition of Asian-Australian was and then figure out how I would go about documenting that. And I guess that, like, the the name of the series, Shifting Subjects, is just a reference to how hard and elusive it is to document cultures, right? So, um, you know, the best I I could ever hope to do, what I concluded, is to essentially just treat each story as if it's kind of like a sonic photograph. And the best I can do is just document a person or an issue or a moment in time before it changes again. Mm. And so it's just this sort of like endless horizon that you're, you know, constantly chasing. Um, doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it, it sort of means that we're not sort of leaning into generalisation or assigning characteristics to everybody that may not actually apply. Mm. Um, yeah. And we, we kick off, uh, pardon the pun, I suppose, in uh, <laughs> with AFL. What, what was it about footy that felt like you had to lead with that? I just can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, I, I am constantly on the fence about how I feel about football. I mean, I was born in Melbourne, raised in Melbourne, uh, you know, lived elsewhere as well, but... Um, it's just always been around. It's always been something that, like, seems to always want me to join in. And I'm, like, I'm a massive joiner. Like, I absolutely no, no ways about it. Like, if there's, you know, I'll get on, I'll get on board with any craze. I just love, like, the spectacle <laughs> yeah. and all of that stuff. But um, I just found that, like, the promise of it just never really delivers for me. It doesn't go all the way. Um you know, not just as, like, an Asian-Australian, but also, like, as a, as a woman, um, you know, the, I mean, there are so many different dimensions that, like, the AFL, as a sport and, like, a sporting culture, a bunch of sporting cultures just doesn't quite... Like, I'm in and then suddenly something racist happens. Or yeah. Something mm. homophobic happens or... Um, and, you know, like, uh, that doesn't mean that I don't have those same issues with things like the arts as well, which is always mm. pitted against sport but I think it's quite pronounced in sport right like where the whole point is to be part of a team the whole point is to work together and like put aside your differences and um but for some reason there's just all these barriers that like sport just can't get past especially and you know AFL being something that's so Australian and so distinctly Melbourne as well. It's ours, <laughs> so we really need to sort it yeah. out. Yeah, so you meet, you do go out in the field and meet people who are rusted on. Yeah, yeah, because I thought, like, I sort of... I, I'm on the fence, but I often stray... Like, I often fall on the side of, like, stepping back, right? Um, so I thought, why not talk to people who are just all in mm-hmm. um, and talk to them at different... sort of different parts of, of the industry and aspects of the sport. So I spoke with um, an AFL super fan... Uh, Geelong Cat super fan, um, and I spoke to an AFL player agent, and I spoke to an AFLW player, and so I tried to sort of, yeah, I mean it was sort of j- 
just to get this bee out of my bonnet mm. because I and it was um yeah so I spoke to all three of them and it, it sort of helped me paint a picture of what kept them coming back to the sport what they loved about the sport and actually the thing that really drove home to me was just like how hard they work to make that space for themselves and to be part of like to, to actually like own that and have that as like a place a happy place for themselves yeah in their lives I know? actually loved uh, I listened to that first episode mm. and loved that you you pointed out like the amount of homework that is actually involved yeah. in like committing to supporting a team yes and like knowing the numbers knowing the names like it's a lot of information that it's really... work especially if you know if you're not someone who has inherited a club yeah um because you know so many people have and that's kind of one of the amazing things about this sport that's so uniquely Australian is that it's like generational mm. but you know if you're a recent arrival to Australia or if you grew up in a family that didn't didn't engage with sport because you know they do exist mm. um and you're starting from scratch you're like learning the whole lexicon of football you're learning like not just sort of the rules of the game but like player names and club histories and who's got beef with who and you know, and in a lot of the sort of media around it as well, it's not exactly sort of, it doesn't really help beginners. Mm. You sort of, it's like, I don't know, it's like tuning into a podcast that has been going for like a hundred years and they've all got their own in-jokes and you're just coming in and you're like, oh, what is going yeah, on? What Quidditch. does that word mean? What is that Quidditch. reference? <laughs> yeah. Sorry? It's like Quidditch. Yes, so it's foreign. Exactly. Mm. So foreign. Um, yeah. So I just, yeah, I, I found it fascinating. And also just briefly, you did touch on, I suppose, Jamie, who you speak with, who must be one of the few civilians to have met Xi Jinping. Yes. Whoa. Yes. I uh, spoke to, so he was a player agent that I spoke to um, and he came to Australia as a, as a teenager, 13 years old, I'm pretty sure, um, from Xinjiang. And his parents, you know, worked at a Chinese restaurant and sort of he was left to himself um, on weekends. So he just joined the local footy team and just fell in love with it. And um, because he, you know, had the Chinese language skills and, you know, he could speak Mandarin and he was already, he started commentating games in Mandarin and <laughs> even helping the AFL host... Um, what are they called? You know, the matches when you go overseas, exhibition matches. Oh, yeah. Um, and so when Xi Jinping, when he was vice president, I think it was in 2011, when he came um, on, on some kind of diplomatic visit, they took him to Etihad Stadium and wanted to show him, like, you know, this is our sport, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but they needed a translator and, uh, and that was him. So... Jamie was like brought in to introduce the game to Xi Jinping, wow. uh, commentate. I just can't imagine. Can you imagine? No. And you know, he sort of he said to me in our interview, like, uh, you know, now that we have a lot more mainland China's uh, Chinese people migrating to Australia, um, my language skills are really being shown up. Like, because really? you know, he he had Mandarin skills from being a child, right? And and, like, you know, in the sort of way that, like, language evolves, you kind of sort of get frozen, not frozen, but, like, your language skills don't progress past a certain point. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he was speaking the language that he knew as a 13-year-old and that he speaks with his family. <laughs> he was speaking 
Speaking to the vice president of one of the most powerful <laughs> yeah. countries in the entire... I just don't... I just blows my mind. And he, he told me that as like a throwaway comment. <laughs> I could imagine putting together a podcast, like, you know, meeting people like Jamie, having these kind of conversations and, and learning about their stories and experiences. You would have maybe like a thousand other ideas for podcasts. Are you just like, yes. oh, my God, then I've got to make this one, got to yeah. do this one. It's incredible how ideas beget ideas or just like, you know, you get chatting to someone and they're like, oh, you still talk to my friend so-and-so mm-hmm. and then you just end up with this backlog mm. of you know stuff that you you want to get to yeah. Like, yeah where else does your curiosity take you in shifting subjects this season all over the place so it's yeah it's different every time the reason that they're all self-contained documentaries is because I just <laughs> I let I kind of let whoever I meet sort of determine the story I don't I try not to go in with like a preconceived idea of what the episode will sound mm. like I mm. sort of let the the talent if you will mm-hmm. lead um so in the second episode, we spend the entire episode inside a tofu factory in Maidstone, um, and we meet this woman, Kem Lee Lay, who, uh, who's been making tofu by hand for 30 years, and it's kind of an insight into just how she's come to like learn and uh, refine her, her trade and technique. Um, but it's also kind of a personal story, and also it's a soundscape, so it's like I mean, the way that I've been sort of writing it down in shorthand is tofu soundscape. <laughs> I want I want the feeling of, like, my aim was to have the listener feel like they were just sitting in the middle of the factory just watching everything go on. Um, mm-hmm. And it was inspired by, you know, those Sesame Street uh, <laughs> clips. They're not, like, the main show, but they'll always, like, show you, like, behind the scenes at a factory. Mm. Um, and you'll watch, like, the flour go into the machine and the mixer with the water and now they press it this way. I kind of wanted it to be a sort of more adult version of that. <laughs> I love that. Does that require, like, a huge amount of extra work? Like, kind of making sure that you capture that sound when you're recording yeah. these interviews and yeah. stuff. Yeah, and actually, like, I was learning a lot of it on the job because I sort of traditionally my background is in journalism and as a producer, and so I'm usually on the other side of the glass and I'm I'm receiving the raw material and then I'm, like, processing it and writing it and yeah. passing it in different ways. But actually to go out and record was a completely new experience. So, yeah, yeah I had to do a lot of, like, put on my big girl pants, brave face, like, hit record, realise I hadn't hit record, come back the next day. Yeah. But luckily no one really thought anything of it. <laughs> and as a podcast maker, what are you trying to avoid? Oh, what do you mean? Well, there are things that you seek out to do, but is there anything that as you go on and get better at it and maybe the podcast you enjoy or don't enjoy, that what you're trying not to do informs your project as much as what you are trying to do? Oh, I don't, that's a really interesting question. I mean, like, on a really fundamental level, I don't ever want to be just phoning it in. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I don't want to just be slapping something together and being like, out it goes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's the, the moment that you sort of disengage in that way and go, oh, it doesn't really matter. What is, what's an episode that you've put an extraordinary or unexpected for you amount of effort into this season, do you uh, reckon? The tofu episode really was, a, yeah, a, lo- a process just because I was learning skills for the first time and um, going through different drafts and... Um, yeah, like learning how to sound design as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, tofu factories are really loud. Did anyone tell you that? I and had also, no idea. No one really has time to talk to you because they're at work. Yeah. Everybody knows tofu factories <laughs> yeah. are really loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just sort of like, you know, you go in and it's it's cavernous and it's like metal and there are just so many things happening that you're like, how am I, all of these sounds are sloshing together. How am I going Mm. to sort of separate them out? And so, um, 
you know, a lot of it is is sound, but I sort of helped it along a little bit by recording, making my own tofu at home and doing a lot of the close-up sounds with a mic. Oh, wow. Um, doing sort of isolated uh-huh. squishing sounds or like when the when the beans are soaking. Like I sort of replicated what I saw at mm. the factory. How do you write it? <laughs> Your own effort. Uh, Pretty good considering I was just, uh, I had, <laughs> at one point I was at my coffee table just sitting on the floor cross-legged and I had this big salad bowl full of soaking soybeans and because I didn't want, you know, my house is on a main road and because I didn't want the traffic noise in, I'd put like a really heavy blanket over myself <laughs> and I had the Zoom mic um, on and I was just like, and I also had like um, the the shotgun sort of on one of those like poles um so I was like it was like I'd pitched a tent inside <laughs> and you could just hear this like wet sloshing from the outside it must have been so my, yeah my partner the things we'll do to get a pure squelch yeah. you know. uh, okay. I'm an artiste <laughs> so where do we find shifting subjects uh, anywhere you get podcasts, uh, you know, if it's on Spotify, if it's uh, on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts, which is what I use, um, just type shifting subjects into the search bar and you should find it. It's like a Eve Klein blue tile, <laughs> um, really beautifully designed by Annie Luo, um, who does a lot of the design for Liminal. Um, and if if podcast things aren't your, like if those platforms aren't your thing you can also sign up to the substack which is shifting subjects.substack.com and you'll get like an email every time a new episode drops all Amazing. right tour out now we've been speaking with executive producer and host of shifting subject uh, lisa devisi thanks so much thank you this is fun Woo! <sighs> that's right triple r Stepping up to plate this week for Weird Science, we're joined from Einstein and Gogo by Chris KP. Morning, Chris. G'day, how you going? Yeah, marvellous. What mm. a curious little area you're bringing us to. <laughs> well, it, it is, and it feels a little bit weird, because uh, this is fundamentally a climate change story, and but it seems like a really frivolous one. And yet... And yet, the science behind it, and indeed the the act of doing the science behind it, is extremely interesting. Mm. So bear with me, if you will. Uh, for those of, uh, for those of you who don't already know, uh, Major League Baseball is a significant uh, enterprise, and in recent years, over the last sort of you know I don't know five six years, the number of home runs being hit, which is almost always a ball being hit out of the park or out of the playing area, has been going up. Now, in some ways, you think, well, how good's that, right? Because that's sort of the ultimate aim of the person with the bat. But on the other hand, the person with the bat is in the minority. At any point during a game, they're the one person. Everybody else really doesn't want them to do that. Everybody else in the field anyway. Um, But the the number of home runs has been going up. So a bunch of scientists at Dartmouth University were wondering, well, what is that for? Is that just because we're getting better at doing that? Is that technology? What is going on with this? And could the conditions that people are playing baseball in have had an effect? So they analysed, and this is hardcore data analysis for you, they analysed more than 100,000 Major League Baseball games between 1962 and 2019, Mm. and wait for it, more than 220,000 individual hits of a bat on a ball um, between 2015 and 2019. So they analysed every single detail of those things. And they covered for bat construction, ball construction, um, illicit drug taking, um, uh, training. They, they counted for all kinds of things that you might otherwise have gone, well, that might have had an influence. Um, in order to pare it down to just that one thing, which was the atmospheric conditions in the ground as much as they could possibly tell, what they found was that a 1% 
sorry, one degree increase in daily temperature would increase the number of home runs in that game by just under 2% on average. It was higher if it was played in the early afternoon when the temperature's really hot and lower when it was played in the early evening. So day games get more home runs than, than night games as a rule of thumb. Um, they also analysed high-speed camera information because basically, you know, your technology in every sport, any professional sport, is going through the roof. Uh, so since about 2015, pretty much every shot in every game of baseball has been analysed by camera. So they were able to look at this, which means they can then track for um, launch angle, launch speed. They can track for all that stuff. So then they're not even saying, well, this is being hit harder or it's a better bat. They're going, well, this is literally how fast it was going and the angle it left the bat. So anything that happens from that point onwards is out of the hands of the players. And, and counting for all that, they basically found that, yeah, climate change or a heating up of the atmosphere is impacting the number of home runs. So the physics behind this is actually quite simple, sort of. And that is that... So everybody knows hot air rises, OK? What people don't know usually is why hot air rises. The reason it rises is because it has more energy, which means the particles, the molecules of air are moving around faster, which means they can spread out more, so there's more gaps between them. So a body of warm air is less dense than a body of cold air. So it tends to rise up, just like a log would rise in, in water or whatever else. But, of course, more space between the air molecules means there's less resistance to anything moving through it. So when you've got a baseball moving through the air, it moves faster through warm air than cold air. So it actually makes a lot of sense that this happens. The really interesting thing is that in this paper, they claim that since 2010, they can actually identify more than 500 home runs that are attributable to atmospheric warming. <laughs> How cool is that? It's wow. extraordinary. Yeah. They've added, and basically, obviously, it's not, if you knock it right out of the park into the car park, that's not going to have much of an influence. But the ones that just make it over the fence, that just get into the first row, yeah, a whole bunch of those may not have made it were it not for the fact they're playing in warmer conditions. So the question then, I guess, is is that good? And like I said before, if you're the person swinging the bat, yeah, that's grouse. But if you're, you know, the person pitching the ball, no, that's a bit ordinary, to be frank. The other question is, is it good for the sport? And this is a really interesting thing. And we've had the same argument in Australia about 2020 cricket, where, you know, from a spectator point of view, if you like, from just from the, from the theatre of it, yeah, everyone likes the ball getting smacked out of the park, it's great. But for people bowling the ball, it's a horrendous situation. And all the tactics kind of get weird they get different all the things you sort of grew up with um, thinking about all the analysis and all the opportunities and all the tactical approaches change and the same thing's happening in baseball there's a whole bunch of people going this is not a good thing for the sport there needs to be a fairer situation needs to be a a more even playing field Um, is that going to make major league baseball um, advocate you know uh, actively for uh, for um, addressing climate change i don't know (laughs) i I suspect not so if you've got a batter who's going for a record Mm -hmm. they will want to play in the day yeah yeah and even though the the atmosphere at night can be better yeah and this is the interesting thing yeah so this is this is where it gets for me it's really interesting because this ultimately comes down to a battle of consistency versus inconsistency, which I think is control over... I personally think it's control over theatre. <laughs> That's what I think it's like. Um, and everyone knows what it's like. Um, they, they, they also, the authors of this paper also um, considered and counted for um, home advantage. And home advantage is, is, can be quite significant depending on where you are and depending on where you've come from. If you've come from somewhere where you're used to the air being really warm, if you're coming from New Mexico and you're playing in Seattle... Uh, at night, it's a massively different atmospheric conditions. And normally you go, well, that'd be difficult on the players, that'd be colder or warmer or whatever else. But we're also now saying, no, no, literally what happens when they hit the ball is different at this point. What happens when you pitch the ball is different. Um, I was always told playing cricket that if it was overcast or humid, that was great for swing bowling. 
I've no idea if that's true because I wasn't good enough to find out. But they say that. But I'm now thinking, well, maybe it's actually that cooler air has more air around the ball, so the effect of the air on the ball is increased, which may be one of the reasons that the ball swings more in England than it does mm. here. I don't know, I'm making that up. It's um, a good theory. So what, what yeah. if you're a pitcher who wants to manipulate the ball to prevent home runs? Where, what, what are your preferences? If you, yeah, well, and the thing about baseball is it doesn't it didn't hit the ground. So you've only got the air. It's only your hand in the air you've got to work with. So I would think that you'd probably want to have uh, cooler air where you've got more air around it so that any effect is going to be more pronounced, you would think. I would think so anyway. Um, so, again, this is the same question. It's the battle between do I give the pitcher the opportunity to, to ply their craft or do I reduce that and allow the batter to be the person that has the most most control over it? And I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, I, and ultimately, it comes down to what you want. If you think about you think about AFL, what AFL has done incredibly well is make an even competition. I mean, they have rigged it <laughs> within an inch of its life to deliberately make it such that for a large chunk of the season, anyone could do quite well. And they want it to be as, as controllable like that, as controllably unpredictable as it can be. Um, so I guess the question for baseball is, you know, do you want this to be um, a bit up there? Do you want to have a, a level of, um, of randomness or do you not want to have that? Do you really want to have it more controlled than that? And I, I started thinking about Melbourne because I'm thinking, well, you know, we have weather. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're known for it in some places. And we have sport. So what a place to think about this. Now, in Victoria, the, the, the climate predictions are basically that we're going to get increased daily temperatures, we're going to get um, uh, probably double the number of very hot days, depending on how, how bad climate change gets. Sea level is going to go up by more than 20 centimetres. Uh, we will have possibly fewer rain events, but more intense ones. When it gets crazy, it's going to get really crazy. Uh, longer fire seasons, um, uh, probably less rain during the cooler months, um, but the seasonality is already getting knocked out, as we already we all know. We all can see that happening now. Um, and much less snowfall. So what does that mean for sport in, uh, in Melbourne? Well, I think that you're probably going to find more days where they stop the tennis because most of the courts are not undercover and it's going to get real hot real often. So they're going to have to stop for player welfare um, at least. More egg frying for the fans. Yeah, I would say more <laughs> egg frying, yeah, totally. Oh, the other question is, is, um, is it going to affect the way tennis balls move? Tennis balls are totally affected by the air around them. So I don't know if anyone studied that, but um, they, because they have fur on the outside of them, they actually develop a bit of a cushion. Mm-hmm. So the whole air-ball interaction is quite different for tennis balls. I don't know if that's been considered. Um, also, if it does rain crazily, well, then you, you've got a whole lot of courts outside. And in fact, there's an increasing number of baseball fields in, in the US that are under a dome. They're basically inside. So that's the other question. It's like, well, do we start doing that more? Do we start you know, cutting ourselves off from the outside world? And all these traditional outside, outdoor sports become much more indoor, which does happen with cricket a bit too, to some extent. Um, cricket and golf, it's gonna, if it rains heavily, that doesn't just affect when it's raining. It can affect hours or days afterwards. So there's massive impact there. Um, I think if you're a skier or a snowboarder, don't do it here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's already pretty dicey, let's face it. I feel like it's a recipe also with the in, in among the dire predictions mm. that if we got the Olympics, you could break some discus records. Well, that's, <laughs> I did wonder about that. Too. Well, discus, I don't know. Um, uh, because discus, I, to some extent, I don't know if this is true or not, but it always looks like it floats to me. Okay. It's, mm. like, a, it's like a crappy frisbee. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm sure that's not true, but it always looks like that. But yeah, javelin, discus, I wonder. I, I don't know. Um, 
I feel, and it's the, on one hand, you sort of go, oh, come on, it's, you know, it's only a little bit of increase, you know, it's how much further can it go? And that's probably true, except for things like the Olympics, where this is the very best. These are the people where it makes a difference. Um, I once asked a, uh, a professional cyclist about shaving legs for cycling, not mine, um, just generally, and he said, yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a good idea if you're in the top half percent of the world cyclists. In terms of going faster, in terms of tearing your hair off your legs when you're falling, when you fall off, yeah, anyone might want to do that. Amazing. But if you just ride, oh, sorry, yeah. no. <laughs> if you're just riding with your mates on the weekend, probably it's no need to be probably shaving not your legs. Make a lot of difference. Yeah. It might look better. It, sure. Fair what enough. a sample size! To, there are two thousand four hundred thirty games in yeah. Major League Baseball every year. Yeah, it, that's the other thing. It's a massive. I, when I started looking that up, because I was looking at the number, the two hundred twenty thousand hits, I'm going, wow, how many were there? Yeah, and the, the scale of it is absolutely enormous. And that's the other thing that this is why it, quote unquote, matters. It's an industry. A mm. lot of people are invested in and trying to make money from this, um, whether it's players or coaches or sponsors um, or the leagues themselves. So it is a huge, um, a huge industry. But as you say, yeah, scientifically, it's, there's a lot of data there to be mined and to be considered. I see a Brad Pitt movie. What was it, Moneyball or something <laughs> like that? Uh, Chris, mate, KP, catch you on Sun and Go Go Sunday. Totally. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Some strong themes have emerged in today's show. You know, we've got the, the, the job interviews with AI, emojis in the business context, you know, Slack and Teams being thrown around. <laughs> and I suppose now I want to pivot table and have a bit of a, a, um, a robust, robust conversation uh, on workplace jargon and acronyms and just kind of get a feel for your core competency mm-hmm. around it. Um, I think it struck me last week um, when, uh, Laura Pietrobom was in reviewing a book. I think off air she mentioned KPIs and it just really kind of, um, I don't know, I always find workplace jargon and acronyms very amusing and and slightly triggering mainly because I think having, I've pretty much always had casual jobs working in hospitality, comedy, bit of film and TV. So, yeah, I've never been quite across it like I've always kind of really grappled and there was a few occasions where I just missed the boat like it went too far um like it was too long and it was too late to ask like oh what does that mean so there's some very specialized jargon going on within these environments the main one I remember and it was in a share house I never knew what an RDO was because my housemate would always be, because she would work full time and I was always, would see her and be surprised that she wasn't at work and she'd be in the hallway and, and I, she would always be kind of like in her pyjamas and I'd see her in the hallway and yeah, I'd be like, oh yeah, like you're not working today and she'd be like, yeah, I've got an RDO and I always kind of was like, I don't know what that yeah. is. I thought, oh yeah. I One can't. day I'll circle back and find out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the... But when I did finally, like, before coming into this job, I worked casually, which I talk about a lot, um, for local councils. And another one that really stumped me was secondment. Oh, okay. Secondment, you wouldn't believe how much that is thrown around at council. Everyone's on secondment. And I feel like that sounds like medical. You know what I mean? I feel like someone is being (laughs) wrapped in bandages. I'm thinking like mummified, embalming kind of process. But it's just jumping around to another position, just trying on another another, um, role, if you will. Is it a bit of a holiday? Or is it 
Is yeah. it a learning exercise? What percentage of people on secondment come back? Yeah, no one ever comes back from secondment. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. Everybody knows that. Oh, you're on secondment, are you? Yeah, it's very loaded. Yeah, it does sound like a bit. I mean, as someone who's never been seconded, never mm. seconded, would love to one day maybe. <laughs> um, it does sound like it's a bit of a like trying another role. There's no maybe minimal consequences because you're like, I'm I'm in this role for three months, whatever. Let's kick our feet up. But curious, how do you two go with, you know, without obviously having to go through your CVs, mm. like how do you go with the workplace jargon? I'm I'm fascinated by it. And as you mentioned, it can sort of vary significantly from workplace to workplace. And so just even today discovering when, Daniel, you were talking about the FTX and how that particular workplace environment was sort of dominated by sort of obscure and deliberately obtuse use of emojis. That's right. Yeah, it was almost to evade uh, capture or to... Yeah. So they would be maybe overly casual. Maybe they were responding to the uh, yeah. to the corporate lingo and they the pendulum swung way too far. Way too far. So there was no accountability or trace of what was going on because it, it was so casual. Exactly, like a, a new form of code or yeah. in a way. And, yeah, definitely, I know what you mean. Sometimes it can be quite alienating and so you can feel like obviously communication at its core ought to be about... Sort of exchanging ideas that are both, that are mutually understood, but yeah, it can be very alienating when you don't get those words. Like, have either of you ever had time in Lou? No. I don't think I've ever had time in Lou. Because <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, time in Lou. I feel like that's that comes with a certain job that implies I don't know a certain level of professionalism. Yeah, wow. no shade to anyone who's had time in Lou. <laughs> oh, God, no, absolutely but not. But I've never had it. I mean, My shout time out. Is... Text him, what's it like? What do you do in time in Lou? And if you've ever been seconded. <laughs> I was wondering whether secondments, because uh, it's, 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 it's so now. professional, maybe we could transport that because so many uh, office jargon gets put into the civilian sphere or whatever, and I wonder if you could have, like, a, a secondment for your relationship. Like, yeah, okay. you, you're not on a I break. I think they call that sec- polyamory. Polyam- <laughs> <laughs> I think they call that an open relationship, but I don't know. I could be wrong there. I just had a thought, maybe, like, our version of secondment, because obviously we're sitting in a studio. Mm. We all sit in the same seats every day, but if we were seconded to different seats, oh, yeah. something wild. I'm so about- repulsed by jargon and predictable language that there are some email programs that it predicts what you're saying. And so every email I construct becomes this little mini uh, Mm. back and forth with myself to maintain my own humanity in the face of being predictive. Yeah. But do you ever just, you're like, you know what, morally I'm against this, but tab, like, because I can't be bothered. You're like, I see it too. I'm like, oh, but look, it's been a long day, tab. Yeah. Fill it in for me. Maybe (laughs) tab could become the new. Yeah. Let's go with that. I love that. Um, but actually, before you, um, before we wrap this up, I thought we'd do a quick game of real or fake Great. for some acronyms. Okay, so first one is TL semicolon DR, which stands for too long, didn't read. Correct. Correct. Yes. True. Okay, next one, YRL, you are late, real or fake? Fake. Fake. Correct. <laughs> um, ICF, it's casual Friday, real or fake? Fake. Yeah. Damn it, yes. Okay, well, this one, okay. I-G-T-G-A-C-D-Y-W-1. I'm going to get a coffee. Do you want one? Fake. True. 
It's true. Wow. <laughs> no, it's not. No. <laughs> like, clearly it's not. Okay, PM, pay me. <laughs> Fake. Fake. R-D-O-R-S. Roster day off, reschedule. Oh, fake. fake. Yeah, okay. Uh, oh, you guys are good. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.